This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine from the DSR Network. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. I'm here in New York City. Uh, and I am joined today by Natasha Bertrand, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a commentator and analyst for NBC, uh, where she covers national security and the intelligence community. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. So, uh, obviously, the story on everyone's mind this week is the release of the Bar letter summarizing the Mueller report. Uh, we now know that Barr will uh, not be providing us with his version of the Mueller report for several weeks. Um, uh, but that has not stopped people from offering a whole range of opinions from the president, uh, saying that he has been completely exonerated and that there was no collusion to a host of other people questioning Barr's motives and methods. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, you, you've been immersed in this story from the beginning, um, and I'm wondering what your reaction to the reactions is right now. <laughs> yeah, so I think that it's really too soon to conclude anything, um, because, as you said, we only got the four-page summary of a report that may be hundreds of pages long, we just don't even know how long it actually is, which in and of itself is, is kind of perplexing. Um, but, you know, I think that the rush to conclude that the Mueller investigation found no evidence of any kind of, you know, collusion or coordination between the campaign and Russia is completely misguided because, you know, as anyone with even a cursory understanding of, um, you know, our legal system knows you, it doesn't have to be provable beyond a reasonable doubt in order for there to be evidence that something occurred, right? So the, the lack of evidence, the, the, the idea that there was not enough evidence to prove that a cr criminal conspiracy occurred does not mean that there was no evidence um, of the contacts between the campaign and Russia, which we know that there were, right? And so I think that now is what I, at least, and other reporters are waiting to find out from the Mueller report itself, which are, you know, the counterintelligence findings and the evidence that special counsel amassed over the last two years that might be able to explain why so many people in Trump's orbit lied about their contacts with Russia, why so many of them seem so eager um, to downplay Russia's election interference, why the president pursued this massive real estate deal and lied about it during the election. I mean, these are really important questions um, that need to be answered. You know, why Manafort gave internal um, campaign polling data to a Russian. These are all things that just by saying in a, in a quick sentence from the Mueller report, well, we did not establish that a criminal conspiracy occurred, are, are completely unsatisfying. And so I think that's why you see Democrats especially rallying around this issue of needing to see the full report. Well, it seems to me that this breaks down into several chunks, and so I'd like to take them one at a time. Um, let me let me start with one that hasn't gotten as much coverage, and then I'll come back to collusion and conspiracy 
and, and obstruction in the overall process. But um, you had a piece um, uh, up early today, the day we're taping this, uh, entitled The Critical Part of Mueller's Report that Barr didn't mention, talking about the counterintelligence portion of his report. Now, I've heard from other sources that it was, in fact, um, members of the Office of Special uh, Counsel who went to the Congress and said, we would like to brief you on this, Um, that this did not come through DOJ directly. Um, And I'm wondering if you've heard anything to that effect as well. Right. So the idea being that the FBI offered to breach like the gang of eight on the counterintelligence findings of the report. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. So that is something that we're hearing as well. And I'm hearing it from the congressional side um, that this, that right now what Congress is focused on is setting a date for those briefings um, because, you know, they understand that, that it's not only, you know, the criminal aspect of this inquiry while the main focus of it. Um, that was important and that is important to understanding its findings. Um, so, so I think, you know, Congress will get a full or hopefully will get a full explanation um, as to what the special counsel found in the underlying evidence. The question, of course, is whether that evidence will ever be made public um, or whether there's a way that Congress will be able to, to present it to the public that doesn't compromise um, sources and methods. Right. And now we should talk a little bit about the significance of the counterintelligence findings and how they differ from the criminal findings. Do you want to describe what people might be looking for there? Yeah. So the counterintelligence, a counterintelligence probe would ask more than whether the evidence collected was sufficient to obtain a criminal conviction, right? It would provide necessary information to the public, perhaps, about why the president is making certain foreign policy decisions. So for example, why has the president been so um, eager to upend US foreign policy over the last, you know, foreign policy since the end of World War II? I mean, NATO, the EU, et cetera. Is that because of his ideology or is it something more nefarious? Is it because he might be compromised um, by the Russians? Is it, you know, were members of his campaign compromised in any significant way in a way that, you know, would make the campaign eager to lift, to promise Russia that they would lift sanctions in the early days of Trump's administration, which we know that they that they did do. Um, so even if all of these conversations, all of these activities did not rise to the level of a crime, they are still very important to understanding the full scope of Russia's election interference in 2016 and whether or not the Trump campaign played any role in that. And I think, you know, also just in terms of explaining things like the Trump Tower meeting, you know, not illegal to have that meeting, but what kind of signal did it send to the Russians about the campaign's willingness to accept their help, about the possibility that there might have been a quid pro quo? Um, You know, these all of these questions can be examined as part of a broader counterintelligence inquiry and cannot, I think, according to experts that I speak to, be, be, you know, uh, understood just by a criminal conviction and just by saying, well, this did not, the evidence we collected did not rise to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt at the, to the point where we could pr- present it in court and obtain a conviction. Right. So each, each criminal issue involved here, whether it pertains to conspiracy or whether it pertains to obstruction, 
involves several components, one of which was, is, is there sufficient evidence to say that it rises above the level of reasonable doubt? And the second is whether there is the desire to prosecute, um, which could be colored by DOJ guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 seems hard to deny, um, as the president has, that this report or that any report could say no collusion took place because we have seen that the president um, uh, uh, encouraged the Russians to intervene, took advantage of the Russians intervening, defended the Russian intervention, sought to, obst uh, to obstruct or at least to slow investigations into that intervention um, uh, and provided some rewards to the Russians for that. And so you could have a case where collusion existed, um, but it didn't rise to the level of criminal conspiracy, but it was a serious national security threat to the United States, or even I might go a step further and, and suggest um, a betrayal, at least of the standards that uh, a U.S. president uh, would have been expected to uphold, which is to say loyalty to the country rather than to any personal financial gain uh, or other uh, potential incentives for such collusion. Right. And, and you know, the, the experts I spoke to and, the, and the, the intel veterans that I spoke to emphasize this point that, you know, if your best day is the day that you're not being convicted of a crime, then, you know, we really need to think about the standards that we hold our public servants to, especially the president of the United States. And, you know, so Frank Figuizzi, who is the former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, he actually said that he never envisioned that Mueller would bring a conspiracy charge. And I've heard this from actual, actually several um, people in this, in this arena. And, you know, they all say that focusing on the absence of this criminal indictment for conspiracy is actually unproductive. They say that if you apply, if all we do is apply criminal standards to investigative findings, then we're missing the point because the vast majority of counterintelligence cases never result in criminal prosecution. They're about determining, as you mentioned, David, the degree to which a foreign power has targeted, compromised, or recruited a subject. And that, you know, are there any laws against that? I mean, short of espionage laws? I mean, there are, there are shades of gray here that I think the Trump campaign and Trump himself kind of masterfully navigated either through, you know, sheer ignorance um, or, you know, savviness. I mean, who really knows at this point during the campaign and perhaps beyond? And those are the questions we really want to get at. And, you know, I was talking to... John McLaughlin, who is the former director, acting director of the CIA, and he said, you know, the, the fact that none of the evidence that Mueller found was enough to establish that such a conspiracy had actually occurred is fairly unsurprising if you know Bob Mueller, um, because according to John, you know, Mueller always noted in their conversations when, when Mueller was FBI director that the term evidence meant something very different to intel analysts, you know, who worked with a variety of sources of varying reliability, perhaps in the CIA, to present to policymakers um, versus what the FBI considers evidence, which is, you know, something so unassailable that they can actually use it in court for prosecution. Um, but, but of course, that doesn't, that doesn't get to the central question of the relationship that the president has 
with the Russian president. And he has done nothing to alleviate those fears, right? So his the secrecy that surrounds their interactions, the fact that he confiscated his interpreter's notes after a meeting with Putin, the fact that he would not let any of his aides or advisors into these meetings, the fact that he stood on a stage in Helsinki and sided with Putin over the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, these are things that for any kind of seasoned counterintelligence investigator raise major red flags. And even if they can't be explained by a criminal indictment, a conspiracy charge, they can perhaps be explained through the more nuanced lens of, of intelligence collection. Yeah, it suggests that, you know, there's a a headline or a story out there to be written that paraphrases Bill Clinton at the time of his own impeachment troubles and said, you know, it's along the lines of it depends on how you define evidence. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's related to it depends on whether you're looking at this as a political story, a legal story or, and I think most importantly, a national security story. And from the perspective of the national security story, one of the things that we tend to do in the United States is get a little narcissistic and focused on uh, the US dimension of this. But of course, England right now, or the UK is going through this Brexit battle and Russia used similar tactics and actually similar organizations, the same organizations, to put its thumb on the scale of the voter on Brexit. It has done the same thing in France and in Italy and in Hungary and in Germany. This is actually part of a systematic effort by the Russians to use the openness of democracy to advance their goals and to do so wherever possible by, you know, without breaking the law, because that would undermine their objectives. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think. Um, you know, this turns a little bit on what Robert Mueller's definition of evidence is, but it also turns a lot on on what Vladimir Putin's objectives have been. And from a perspective of a broader campaign against the West, a finding along the lines of of the bar interpretation of all of this actually plays directly into Putin's hands. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, high-level Russian officials have already been kind of celebrating this bar report, saying that it completely kind of exonerates the Russians, which, which of course, is not true because the, the bar summary actually does confirm the U.S. intelligence community's findings from 2017 that the Russians interfered in two main ways, through their, through their uh, information warfare and through the hacks on the Democrats. Um, so, but they're already using this to say, you know, look at the U.S., look how foolish they are. This is, you know, this is complete um, BS. We never did this, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think that the, the shortage of information that we're getting out of, out of the special counsel, out of the DOJ, is, is playing right into their hands. And it's, it's putting them in a more powerful position than ever, especially because the president is continuing to say over and over again that this was all a hoax. And the reality is that this was a very serious attack. The bar summary, you know, goes a little bit into that, as I mentioned, by saying, by acknowledging that the IC was actually correct in its, in its findings there. Um, but by downplaying this, I think we're also losing sight of, of the big picture here, which is that 
if we don't figure out how the Russians were able to compromise potentially, you know, certain members of a presidential campaign, perhaps even the president himself, then how are we going to protect against that in 2020? How are we going to protect against that kind of interference? And, and what makes us think that the Russians won't be even more emboldened to do it again? Yeah. Well, you know, the Russians are not above gloating about these things. And yesterday, Russian state television, when giving their report on this, said this now ensures that Trump will win with or without their help in 2020, um, which really is sort of turning the knife a little bit. Uh, um, and I'm sure that they all enjoyed a, a good laugh about that. Um, you know, the other uh, set of issues here have to do, of course, with the question of obstruction. Um, and it's here that, um, you know, th there are even more questions uh, that have arisen about Barr's approach. One um, having to do with why Mueller um, left it as an open question. Eric Holder was quoted as saying he never received um, a report from a prosecutor without a recommendation. Secondly, if he did leave it as an open question, did he do so to present it to the Congress because the DOJ does not make judgments uh, or indictments against sitting presidents uh, rather than to leave it to the attorney general? Uh, if Mueller took two years doing this, why did Barr take two days uh, to reach or, or a couple of weeks if he had it a couple of weeks ago uh, to reach a decision about the obstruction issue? And then there are questions about Barr's underlying thesis on obstruction, which was that there has to be um, a prosecutable crime in order for there to actually have been obstruction, uh, which, of course, contains a fallacy, which is if you uh, 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 there may be a crime, then the time to obstruct, according to his thesis, would be before you could have, have proof of the crime. Uh, because then it would not be a crime to obstruct. It would only be a crime to obstruct after there was sufficient proof uh, to claim that a crime took place. So this seems to be really fraught. Um, and I'm wondering how you think all this is going to play out. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all exactly right. Prosecutors, former prosecutors that I've spoken to have been shocked across the board that Mueller decided to do this. And, and honestly, some of them have been a little bit unnerved by it, saying that this actually was Mueller's kind of entire job was to make a decision, um, especially since this constituted virtually half of his entire investigation. So there's been a lot of shock there. There has been less shock, I think, on the part of people who have read the special counsel, counsel regulations closely about the fact that Barr took it upon himself to make that determination. So according to Chuck Rosenberg, who's former chief of staff um, to Mueller, he, he said that the special counsel regulations make it clear that this is Barr's purview, that if the special counsel who reports directly to the attorney general is unable to make that finding, then that would feasibly, technically, you know, fall to bar. Now, is that the right thing for him to do? Not necessarily, because the independent counsel regulations, you know, made it so that the, the, the findings from the prosecutor at that moment would be referred to the House, and then the House would determine whether or not to make those findings public. Um, Special counsel regulations were kind of an overcorrection from the Starr era, wanting to make the findings a little more private, wanting to make it so that they had kind of a buffer between 
the special counsel and Congress, um, and then therefore a buffer between, you know, the special counsel and the public in determining, you know, whether or not they're going to drag someone through the mud that they didn't necessarily charge. Um, so I think, you know, this is a complicated issue, but you're completely right. And, and prosecutors have told me also that it is, it is bizarre that Barr chose to, I mean, it's not, it's not crazy, but it's, it's interesting that Barr chose to make this argument that the underlying crime had to have occurred in order to obstruct justice, because of course that's not what occurred in the Scooter Libby case. It's not what occurred in, you know, the, um, uh, Martha Stewart case. There are a lot of instances in which obstruction was able to be proven without that underlying crime um, having occurred. And so I think that he definitely was playing some some kind of interference role for the president. And that also comes into question when you consider the fact that he never actually quoted a full sentence from Mueller's report throughout his entire summary. He took sentence fragments. He seemed to quote only very sparingly from Mueller's actual report. And it seems like, you know, since he did not say that there is a bevy of classified information that needs to be redacted and declassified before it actually goes to Congress, before it goes to the public, it seems like his, his unwillingness to take larger sections from Mueller's report were very selective. And I think that's what people are worried about. But we've actually just gotten some breaking news while, while we're on this podcast that apparently the Justice Department is now saying that they are going to release the full Mueller report, you know, after taking out grand jury material, et cetera, within weeks rather than months. So we may actually see, um, you know, a, a redacted, albeit redacted version of the report coming out sooner than we expected. Of course, the one big question is how redacted. But there's another um dimension of this, which hasn't gotten quite as much reporting, um, and indeed, I, I think that's because it's hard to report on, but something that strikes the casual or not so casual observer of this whole Mueller process is that the decision to end the investigation seems to have left a lot of loose ends, whether it's Roger Stone or Randy uh, Credico or, uh, uh, what's his name, Corsi, or um, uh, uh, some of the other, uh, you know, uh, ongoing uh, discussions, you know, pertaining to say Gates and why did they leave Gates's sentencing opening to May and and so on and so forth. In other words, there seem to be a bunch of elements of this, quite apart from uh, the issue of subpoenaing the president or not, which has some questions about what why the president was not subpoenaed, or uh, uh, quite apart from. WikiLeaks and the disposition of the case of Julian Assange, who may or may not get extradited from the UK. It, 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 the timing seems odd and more correlated to the arrival of, of Barr in this office than to the conclusion of what seems to be the arc of Mueller's inquiry. Now, are there doubts um, about the, the rationale for this and, and thoughts that it may be politically truncated um, or or is was there a kind of uh, you know sort of reason behind Mueller de determining to wrap things up now no absolutely I think those are those are exactly the right questions to ask and until we know I think why and actually Benjamin Wittes wrote a really good piece on this until we know why. Mueller decided to end his inquiry now, it's going to be really difficult to understand his findings. Um, 
And, you know, just the fact that he ended the investigation before the Roger Stone trial is, is an entire investigation in and of itself, because the Roger Stone trial could actually produce a lot of new information that could go to the heart of Mueller's original mandate, which was to investigate whether there was, you know, a coordination or links between the campaign and the Russian and Russian government officials, which would include Russian military hackers. Um, so, so it's very, very curious, and no one seems to have a good answer for it. But, you know, speculation about when Mueller would start to wrap up came in December, really, when the first reports came out that he was going to wrap by, you know, late uh, February, early March. And, of course, that also coincided with, you know, Matt Whitaker's time at the Justice Department. It coincided with um, the departure of Jeff Sessions, with, um, you know, uh, deliberations about who was going to be the next AG. Um, so it, it does seem like, you know, especially considering that Mueller told Barr two weeks ago that there was no obstruction, it makes it makes you wonder, well, if Barr said to Mueller, you know, all right, well, you found no obstruction, so time to wrap this up. It's getting, you know, it's getting to be, you know, really distracting for the president. It's bad for the country, et cetera. Um, and, you know, this is backed up also by informed speculation from from at least one person who, who was on his team at one point who, who has spoken to me and who said, you know, look, this was not a long investigation by any means. I mean, this was under two years. Um, Iran-Contra was like seven years. Whitewater was, was years and years, I think it was five, four or five years. I mean, you know, when, when you think about the vast, the vast um, mandate of this investigation, which was dealing with an adversarial foreign government, with foreign contacts, with, you know, intelligence questions, it just seems like wrapping it up in one year and 10 months was, you know, ambitious at best or nefarious at worst. And I think that's a question that we're going to really need to get to the bottom of. And, and Democrats are already talking about subpoenaing Mueller to testify um, about his mindset and all of this and about whether he did face any pressure from the Trump controlled DOJ, because ultimately, you know, a lot of the decisions that the special counsel has made did have to be you know, run past the AG. The AG is a political appointee, did have the final say on a lot of this stuff. So it, it's definitely a question worth asking. Well, it also, you know, I mean, just as, you know, collusion took place, whether it was criminal conspiracy is another issue, but there was, there were all the elements of collusion. There were also all the elements of obstruction, starting from very um, early on with early firings associated with Flynn and later the Comey firings, uh, intimidating statements by the president about potential witnesses, um, uh, 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 firing uh, 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 or discussions of firings apparently took place with Whitaker during his time as acting attorney general uh, in an effort to suppress um uh, prosecutions or to slow them down, uh, and 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 through to this, and I, I guess the the question becomes, you know, whether we've we've entered a kind of a zone that the framers of the Constitution never really anticipated, uh, where they were seeking to ensure that no one was above the law, and they established checks and balances, but they didn't envision a system, I think, in which um, wrongdoers or parties uh, uh, that had such closely aligned interests 
could be in charge of different branches of the government in such a way that they could essentially institutionalize obstruction. So the president could do one thing, and that would be a problem only if the Congress was willing to call him on it. And if you had the Senate opposed to that, and clearly Mitch McConnell has been opposed to that, then the president would have impunity in that regard. And and then, of course, people could challenge it in the courts. But if, in fact, uh, the president believes that the Supreme Court of the United States would not be inclined to vote against him on these issues, then he might feel further empowered uh, to take these actions in this respect. And you could go then from one person uh, obstructing justice to actually the entire system ensuring that that person or those associated with them was above the law. And this this seems to be um, the kind of thing that is is actually almost impossible to counteract in our system, uh, but but also seems to be what's happening here to some degree. Right. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of lawmakers were, were speculating that this obstruction question could ultimately prompt some kind of constitutional crisis because all of that combined with the fact that DOJ has this kind of outdated, non-binding policy of not being able to indict a sitting president makes for a culture of you know, virtual impunity for the president, um, short of him actually going out on Fifth Ave and, and shooting someone, um, which, you know, who knows. But, you know, I think that is the main question here is, you know, Barr has a very expansive view of executive authority. And I think that's part of the reason why he was installed. He thought from the very beginning that Mueller's obstruction inquiry was was fatally flawed. That's actually probably how he got the job. He essentially auditioned for it. He wrote a 19-page memo that was unsolicited to the Justice Department, arguing why the the in, in inquiry that Mueller was conducting into whether or not Trump obstructed justice by firing Comey was completely misguided and inappropriate. He then forwarded that memo to Trump's lawyers. And so considering the fact that Trump's lawyers were always apparently more concerned by the possibility that he could get ensnared by an obstruction inquiry than the possibility that he might get charged for a criminal conspiracy with the Russians. It seems like that was the most important consideration for them in appointing someone who would not be recused from this investigation, like Jeff Sessions was, and who fundamentally disagreed with the idea that a president could be you know, investigated for obstruction short of him, you know, directly supporting perjury, which was, you know, which is still kind of an outstanding question to what extent he actually told Michael Cohen, his lawyer, um, to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations in 2016. Um, but, but yeah, I think this is, this is an unsolved question and Congress may have to come up with a way to address it given the political climate that we're in right now. Right. Of course, the Congress McConnell is is an immovable object on these things, so it's it's unlikely uh, that the whole Congress will move on it, and the House, if it takes action on these things, will only get so far, and then it will fall to the courts. And of course, how the courts will act is 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 another issue. We've taken a lot of your time. I just want to wrap up with a, one or two more questions. One has to do with Barr. You know, Barr has come in. Uh, he has a kind of a reputation as a fixer, but it, it, prior to entering in, he he. He at least had kind of a decent reputation. He's now quickly established himself 
as someone who is acting in a very uh, political way to defend the president. And I think he sort of changed, you know, everybody's perception of his role or at least clarified their perception of his role as a consequence. But it does leave us, you know, questions then about what else remains in, in the way of uh, potential legal jeopardy for the president because there's 16 other investigations and many of them are under um, federal jurisdiction. So, for example, you talk about the Southern District of New York, and while it has this reputation for being an independent actor, kind of apart from the Justice Department, that's not true. And many of the kinds of cases that it weighs actually require approval within main justice, whether they're tax cases or national security cases. And some of its independence is more uh, a result of custom and and not a result of any kind of uh, specific mandate. And so it would be, you know, an, an activist uh, attorney general who was not, uh, who was seeking more to be the president's defense lawyer than he was uh, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, um, might be able to quash slow down um, uh, or 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 otherwise impede investigations in a place like the Southern District did. Are you hearing about concerns in that vein? You know, I really haven't, actually. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned that the Southern District of New York obviously is not, it, it still falls under DOJ policy, it still falls under DOJ control. But they are known for their aggressive independence from main justice. Um, and for that reason, I really have not heard any rumblings of potential interference from main justice in any of their investigations, nor have I heard of any concerns about interference in, you know, the New York attorney general investigations or the New York state in, uh, investigations into Trump's business dealings, Trump's foundation, Trump's, Trump's charity. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I really have not heard people be concerned about that. And I think that those investigations will, you know, they'll certainly be challenged by the president's legal team, by his, you know, by the Trump organization lawyers. But I, I imagine that they'll continue fairly unimpeded, um, you know, assuming that the Justice Department doesn't take, you know, a, a highly aggressive role, which no one really foresees at this moment. You know, if you were covering the Trump administration in the first two weeks of the Trump administration, and you said that, you know, um, a st you know, story will come out that a Department of Justice investigation will prove that uh, uh, the, the, the findings substantiate the findings of the intelligence community, that the Russians intervened in the U.S. election, um, and that they did so specifically with the purpose of electing Donald Trump. Um, that would have been a pretty big story because this was the main thing that for the first year of the administration, Trump was denying. This is what he was denying when he was standing next to Putin in Helsinki. And yet that seems to be the throwaway conclusion of this report, right? You, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, it was, it was in there. Oh yeah. yeah. The Russians, the Russians tried to help Trump win. And, and the, 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 the you have to give some credit to the White House and I seldom do that, but you have to give some credit to the White House for having shifted the discussion to this issue of collusion and away from the fact that to some degree, we it's hard to measure, but to some degree, the president was elected with the help of a U.S. enemy. 
Right. And in many ways aided and abetted that interference by, you know, calling on Russia to hack Clinton's emails, by consistently denying that the Russians had played any role in altering the outcome of the election, um, you know, by, by ignoring the FBI's warnings about the idea that the Russians were trying to infiltrate his campaign. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. The, the fact that we've had these kind of day-to-day revelations about, you know, perhaps members of his campaign meeting with this Russian and that Russian and coordinating, coordinating there seems to have diluted the impact of the central finding here, which is that Russia wanted Trump to win. They interfered on his behalf, with or without his help, but I would argue with, even if it was unwitting or not on purpose. Um, and and the, the conversation now has shifted so much towards whether there was a criminal conspiracy that that is now what, what Trump supporters are claiming vindication on. Um, well, no crime was committed, therefore the president has been totally exonerated of any kind of collusion with Russia. Therefore we can talk about all of this as if it was one big hoax. Um, if the Russians do try to interfere again, which they likely will, according to experts I speak to, they will probably continue trying to compromise certain elements of, you know, both parties. And that is something that they have to be on guard over. And that is something that, you know, leadership, it, it comes from the top that, you know, that the white house and the administration has to come out and say, this is a very real threat and they need to address it because that kind of leadership is something that's been sorely lacking over the last four years. And it's what's really continued to embolden the Russians. Well, and it creates a, a vicious cycle, right? Because the White House doesn't want to acknowledge that all of this stuff happened. And so they've been slow walking the defenses against the Russians do it. And if the Russians do it more uh, and that were to come out, that would be embarrassing to them. So they want to, you know, they'll want to sort of, uh, suppress the discussion of that, and it raises the likelihood that it actually happens. And um, you've you've got a very you know broad group of people, from the president to McConnell to Graham uh, to Barr now and so forth, all working with this at a common end. Well, at, at least it suggests that over the course of the next couple of years, you will be kept busy on this um, uh, story. I don't know if it has you. The prospect of that has you pulling out your hair just yet, but um, <laughs> it seems to me that uh, the people who say that we're at the end of the beginning of this story are more accurate uh, than the people who say that we're at the beginning of the end. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, that the, to this chapter is certainly not closed. It won't be closed until we get a full reckoning and a full understanding of what happened in 2016, why the president acts the way he does towards Vladimir Putin, be that because, you know, he just likes authoritarians or because he is actually compromised. Um, this, this is far from over. There are still so many questions that are left to be answered. Well, hopefully you will come back and join us again uh, to discuss those as the questions do get answered. Congratulations on the great work you've been doing, and thank you very much for joining us on this edition of National Security Magazine. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks, thank you very much for joining us. And if you want more about National Security Magazine, you want to go back to past episodes. John McLaughlin was mentioned. You may want to go back and listen to that episode. Go to the DSRnetwork.com and, uh, and, and, and go into our archives. Um, listen to uh, the other shows that we produce here, from Deep State Radio to Washington for Beautiful People. And, um, and stand by for some other announcements of some new programming we've got coming your way. Thank you very much. Great. 
Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find